and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the event conversation. There's an exciting announcement coming up as members of the Business Design Centre team join us in the studio. So the Business Design Centre had a very colourful history. Um, it earned its royal title as a result of its patronage in the 1900s. Then we've got a fresh edition of Venue Talk as Nathan Marks and Joe McGarrigal from the Higher Space Venue Expert team bring you two exciting new venues. Um, my uh, my problem with uh, Great Gatsby is like a theme for events. Everyone wants like Great Gatsby as a theme for an event. Like they've never read the book and understood that the whole point of the book is that people would talk, people have parties to um, cover up for the inherent loneliness and lack of uh, lack of reason within their lives. But anyway. But first, it's the largest gathering of humanity in the world. The Hindu festival of Kumbh Mela is underway. Two hundred eighty-eight million for a festival hall. What does London need to do to be a 21st century city of culture? The redevelopment of Earl's Court, what does this mean for the West London community? All that and more as Sam Allen, Martin Fullard and Ed Poland are sitting down for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Hello. Good evening. I am delighted to say that we are joined again by Martin Fullard, editor of Conference News. Martin, how are you doing? I'm very well. Back from France. Been there the last couple of days on a uh, on a fam trip with a load of agencies from around the UK. We've been skiing up mountains, skiing up uh, down mountains, snowmobiles being towed up by snowmobiles in trailers that look like the Kuiper trailer your dad would take to the tip with a load of tree cuttings in it and then sledge down on little unicycle sledges in the pitch black. And you've been, been sick because you ate some bad very... some bad fish. Which agency gave you the bad fish? None of the agencies gave me the bad fish. I shall not reveal the identity of the institution that provided the bad fish. Thought we might have an exclusive there. Sam Allen is back. Happy New Year. Is it you're allowed to say that on the 30th of January? It's almost February. Oh, happy Chinese New Year. That's Valentine, fine. Valentine's Day? Yeah, no. no. So, Sam, you had, uh, it seems like you've had a busy year. So far, so good, yeah. I um, I went off on my travels, had a little bit of a retreat, did some writing and launched a new business. So, yeah, in 30 days it has been rather life-changing. Sam Allen, MC. Sam Allen, professional MC, moderator and facilitator, yeah. So, yeah, the business pivoted. You have to go with what the market wants and I've had more and more calls over the last six to 12 months for MC work and, you know, leading the charge on gender and diversity. There aren't many female MCs in the industry and it's an opportunity for me to do something that not only uh, I seem to be very good at, according to my new clients, but I'm so passionate about, as you guys know, when we talk about this in the podcast, effective meetings, engaging participants, and I can play a big part in that now. So, yeah, roll on 2019. So how do you do it? How do you set yourself up? As an, I mean, you are a brilliant, you are a brilliant MC. You spoke at Event Lab and you just feel the room in a, in a way that really stood out. How, but talent alone surely isn't enough to get how do you how do you set yourself up as a as a as a speaker i think there's a a lot of things that you've got to do you've got to work with the right people so event planners out there you know you need to engage your mc or facilitator early in the planning process we are people who are experienced in meeting design meeting architecture and understanding how to engage different types of participants and delegates so i think that's really important and something that i'm well-versed in and well-experienced in from my experience of being in meeting professionals international MPI. 
Um, I'm passionate about people and getting the best out of people. So engaging content and speakers with the room is something that I've always been interested in doing and, and I'm passionate about and now I'm doing it for a living, which is great. You are brilliant at it. I can't wait to see how it goes. Thank you. Guys, okay. Who has heard of the Kumea Festival? Uh, no. So, for listeners who haven't heard about this, it's a mass Hindu pilgrimage of faith in which Hindus gather to bathe in uh, a northern city of Lalabad and it's billed as the largest gathering of humanity on Earth. So, over the course of February, in fact, I think half of February, 110 million people wow. are expected to attend. And you can see this from space, they say. First thing I thought when I looked at this, how on earth do you coordinate 110 million people in one place at nearly one time? Well, my first question was, did they print the uh, registration ID badges? I wonder who their registration partner was, or is. Well, I just kind of, uh, I just got the stats up in front of me, and it's quite remarkable. So it's 120 million people between mid-January and March, and some interesting numbers to go with that. 122,000 toilets have been built, 20,000 dustbins, uh, 4,200 premium tents... It doesn't actually say how many non-premium tents there are, but if you can see it from space, I'd imagine it's more than half a dozen. 1,500 rickshaws, 524 buses, 300 kilometres of temporary roads and 10,000 policemen. That must take some organising. Well, thankfully, due to the religious nature of this festival, I think we will have all seen it on TV but just didn't perhaps realise the, the huge extent... Um, if if you're not of that religion or in that country, perhaps. But it happens every 12 years, yeah, 12 I understand. Years. So at least there's 12 years in, and this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, way before technology, way before infrastructure like aviation, trains, so on and so forth. So it does prove that, you know, our industry is one of the longest standing and we've been putting together events for a very, very long time. And we don't need to bother with technology. And we don't need to bother, although I think some of the, the technology that they're going to be using here in terms of the communication and how they're using GPS uh, technology to, to check the sanitation in the toilets, you know. So I think technology is probably improving the experience for those people. But phenomenal that on one day, 30 million people will be arriving. So for us event planners out there, when we're looking at our events for 100 or 200 people, it kind of makes you put things in perspective Everybody who's running events should go and have a look at this and, and really feel good about themselves. What, what's the closest that, we, that Europe comes to that? Do you guys know? I have no idea. I would Olympics. guess. Yeah. Olympics. How many is the Olympics? You're probably coming up to... That's a good few hundred thousand at the very least. At the very least, yeah. Somewhere between a few hundred thousand and a million people. I would imagine somebody mm. should have some stats. The on only that. other call in. The only other compact event I could think of would be a New Year's Eve fireworks display, yeah. uh, and then even then, that's, that's tens of thousands of people. Exactly. Maybe so yeah, I mean, I don't think Europe comes even close. I mean, even uh, the uh, pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia is only two and a half million people. I think it would be a great case study. I think we should be uh, pulling out some content from this, and again. One of our bugbears that we talk about with the media, Marty, is that 
we see this on BBC News. Perhaps it's something that Conference News could explore more because I think for the event planner, I think it would be really interesting to see the sort of behind the scenes and some of the things and the challenges that they have and the, mm. the solutions that they produce. I would love to see that. We, we discussed last last time, we yeah. discussed the Fire Festival, which was the one of the worst run events in I've in not history. seen this film yet. I must be one of the only people who hasn't seen it in the industry, but uh, I was obviously listening to the previous podcast. I'm obviously aware of all the media coverage about it, so I am looking forward to catching up with that. Pretty amazing. So how about Conference News on site in Allahabad covering what must be one of the best-run events in the world? Well, my reporter at Conference News, Stuart Wood, was out in India for a short time, so maybe I might send him out there. He might have some local knowledge. What are the things you need to think about when there's that many people? What are the what are the things that you have to think about organising an event that you don't have to think of, think about normally? Well, I don't wish to sound uh, too flippant about this, but it says uh, on the BBC's website that the last time this event happened, 40 people were killed in a stampede at a train station getting there. So uh, I'd say railway railway safety and security would be my first priority. I'd say safety, um, access, and sanitation. Well, 120,000 toilets. Hopefully that should be taken care of. They've got their own lost and found camp. Mm. That was set up in 1946 and has helped reunite countless family members and friends who were separated at the event. Wow. Wow. Big numbers. Looking forward to hearing more about it. Well, it has uh, driven a lot of attention to Alalabad, which, uh, which I guess slightly leads on to, to the next thing that I, I want to talk about, which is closer to home. Uh, which is London, and this is an article in the Guardian, or was it the? Yeah, it was in the Guardian, and this was about uh, first designs revealed for a brand new uh, 288 million pound London concert hall. So, plans in the offing, and it just it made me think. You know, London's already, you know, pretty well known as a as a city of of culture, and I imagine that has a huge impact on the events industry in London. How you know how is how important is it that London keeps on reinvesting in these types of institutions and doesn't get complacent and, and make sure it stays at the forefront of, of global culture? Have you seen the plans? I've only saw them today for the first time as I was having a look on the train. I mean it all looks very impressive and it should be as well for a snitch under three hundred million pounds. Uh, but I think you know, London has to be very careful that it's not complacent. Uh, and yes, it absolutely should be ensuring it's ahead of the game when it comes to making sure we have world-class facilities. We are one of the richest countries in the world. London is one of the richest cities in the world. We uh, we, we have to be able to provide that. So Brexit, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. Everyone wants to come to London. There's I so many we were avoiding theaters. the B word today. OK, that's the last one mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everyone wants to come to London, brilliant theatre and concerts and, you know, everything else. But I guess you, you know, you can't rest on your laurels. And I imagine there'll be, there'll be people saying, is it right to spend this, this amount of money at the moment? But Well, it says it's being backed by private investors. So you can't really complain too much about that. Uh, unless I've missed something obvious, there's no public money going into it. So no real grounds to complain on that, in, on that side. It's very difficult because I, I come at it from a couple of different angles, having worked at one of London's finest arts venues, the Barbican. Um, still a fabulous venue, but I agree with what they're saying in terms of, you know, 
the Barbican was built and opened in the 80s, you know, very early 80s. Technology has changed. And there is a big influence in terms of the, the capacity and the venues that you actually have in terms of what you can attract in, culturally. So even the Barbican back in the day was built because it needed, it needed the infrastructure to bring the people like the Royal Shakespeare Company, the London Symphony Orchestra, to London to, you know, be the residents of the Barbican. Um, and they made significant investment in things like the acoustics in the concert hall to try and keep those people, uh, keep those uh, those orchestras in. So there is a there is an argument that the investment in culture in our country is is lacking, and that's something I would agree with. If you look at the article and you look at the investment, it's all from mid tier cities. So it's Hamburg. Krakow have just, uh, there's a fabulous convention centre and concert hall um, in, in Poland, in Krakow. And again, batting above its weight in terms of meetings and events. So I think we're seeing a trend of mid-tier cities really developing themselves in terms of culture and then by nature, meetings and events, because they do dovetail really, really nicely. So yeah, I think you're right about London not becoming complacent, but again, is that the right place? Have we got the capacity? Do we need more capacity? Is that the right investment? Because I would imagine if you went out to the London voter right now with knife crime, with murders up, no safety on the streets, problems with the NHS, and you said to them, well, we're going to take your, your taxpayers' money and we're going to invest this in a classical concert hall, I can imagine if we went outside the studio now what the response would be. Events is massive business, though global events. How big is it? How big is a part of the pitch when you're, you know, you're pitching for big, big kind of global business in London? How much? How big a part of the pitch is it to be able to say, you know, while your delegates are here, they can go to, you know, this incredible production or this incredible tourist attraction? Like how does that have a real tangible impact on these big events coming here? The, the, the people I've met, it is. It is a bit divisive, actually. I mean, London's one of those cities that doesn't really need an introduction. Everyone knows London and generally what's around. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, it is important that it needs to constantly either reinvent itself or make sure it does appeal to a wider audience. And certainly, you know, the cultures, the arts, is ha has to be a key thing. And London always has been a centre and it needs to always be one step ahead of everyone else. Otherwise, it will very easily fall behind. But I feel that we... We as a city do that. I think, you know, the South Bank's reinvented itself. We've got some, you know, some really up-and-coming new cultural activities happening in the Shoreditch sort of area. We have the West End, and it still remains one of the greatest places for entertainment, and you are getting people, and you are going to get delegations who are going to come here because, yeah, they can pop in and go and see a show, pick up tickets to go and see Hamilton or whatever it might be. So... You know, we're a Tier 1 city, city, Ica, number one. You know, that's not going to disappear and is investing that money, and if it involved a taxpayer pound, I think that we would have um, then, some umbrage taken on that. As we were discussing you know, earlier on today, the impact the events industry has on its immediate local community is is just as important as attracting you know, business from outside. And you know, we've been talking about Earl's Court. Uh, and... Yeah, what's happening at Earl's Court? There's plans afoot? Yeah, plans, well, obviously, as we all know, the grand old... Uh, 
event centre has been torn down. It's just a, a wasteland now. Uh, and the, obviously there is a plan to build just flats and so on all up there. Uh, but I've been in touch with a, the Save Ellscourt Action Group and they have handed a petition into the mayor uh, and it's looking positive that he's going to put some sort of mandate down that a green venue should be built on that site together with housing because obviously you know there's room for room for both but I took a walk around there and the businesses are just struggling I met one hotelier who just doesn't think he can see the year out and you know he's mm. relied on the Earl's Court venue business for, for years and years and years it's the same with the local shops the pubs all of them have suffered as a result of that venue's closure. So it's a massive, massive reminder about how important the events industry is for local areas. So what have we got to look forward to at Earl's Court? At the moment, I don't know. But there's certainly a lot of positivity about maybe some sort of new event venue rising from the ashes there. So mm. watch this space, I guess. And again, I think that's a really interesting combo because the Guardian article was saying, well, it would, you know, this new concert hall would have to be built in the City of London. Obviously, the charge is being uh, driven by Sir Simon Rattle, according to this Guardian article, who is um, London Symphony Orchestra. Um, so that's very much City of London, and we all know that's the financial hub, so that's where the cash will be. But interesting that we've got a derelict area, which once was a thriving event community, that has turned, you know, turned a community into a ghost town. Mm -hmm. Um, driven down prices, putting businesses out of business. And we've got an infrastructure there ready to develop. Absolutely. And what is the point in building housing if there's nothing for them? I mean, the whole reason the Barbican got built, it's housing. You know, we should re remember this. It's housing and entertainment all in one place. So you work, rest and play in the same area. So perhaps Earl's Court could take a leaf back into history and look at that in terms of a cultural venue, a green venue, invest in the in the local area and the economy. Maybe we've just solved solved London's problems, guys. Of course, that's what we do. We just solved Brexit. Maybe. Oh, twice, we? twice we've mentioned. So I'm not going to talk too much about Brexit because I know you, you'll all throw your microphones at me and people will be... And our listeners will turn off. Listeners will be throwing their iPhones across the platform. But it's one thing I think is clear about Brexit. You know, you need to be you need to be retaining your your staff and investing in them and, and making sure that they're they're kind of really happy and thriving in your businesses, which leads me on to to something. So I think Martin, you had something to say on this. This is the EIB Talent Task Force highlights shortages. Uh, Sixty-one percent of event industry employers are experiencing skills shortages within their business. So more than 275 employers responded to this survey. Collective workforce that is of 34,000 people. Total revenue of £6 billion. Uh, in addition to providing data on recruitment, uh, training, HR processes, um, plenty of evidence of a lack of skills, yeah, skill, skill shortages. What's going on? Not the time for this? Well, this is, I mean, the, the, the first thing of note from my side is this, it is not just a skills shortage with in the events industry as such. If you actually like read the, you know, the, the report by the EIB Talent Task Force, we're talking about sales, project management, AV technicians, uh, 
exhibition stand builders, people in every conceivable aspect of our industry, rather employers in every conceivable aspect of our industry, are struggling to find people. I mean, just some numbers to throw at you. Uh, agencies, 60% of agencies uh, reporting a gap in sales and business development roles, for you know, for instance. And obviously agencies need need talented salespeople to get out there and actually justify what they do. It's a very competitive marketplace that crosses over into the advertising world. So you've mm. got to have that clarity and you've got to have that have that noose. Uh, the supplier section, again, uh, looks like it's struggling, mainly in project management uh, and, well, venues. What did venues say? Uh, technical skills. Technical skills is a worry, right? We need to be, we can't fall, mm. but fall, fall behind on that. Well, absolutely. Uh, how this gets addressed on such a on a grand scale, I I couldn't even begin to guess. Let's direct that question to Sam then. Sam yeah. takes a very big, deep breath and sighs out, <laughs> audience. Um, I am frustrated with the industry on a whole level about this. Um, I sit on the business visits and events partnership as a vice chair, as I'm sure regular listeners will know. Uh, the umbrella organisation for the industry uh, made up of the trade associations, government associations and uh, destinations. Um, we've gone out to industry to garner opinion in terms of how much the industry wants to professionalise itself. There's complacency, lethargy around that kind of mm. yes but we don't really want to do anything about it and you know that's a frustration. Then the EIB who uh, talent task force who are doing an enormously huge job and can I just point out these are volunteers this is not their day job mm. they're doing this because they're passionate about developing our sector developing this industry this industry is valued at one trillion dollars go globally mm. yet why are we not as an industry investing in ourselves and the professionalization of ourselves if we were lawyers if we were marketers we you know there's a professional accreditation for all of these things why are we not investing if you look out and you look at the, the training companies, there are very few good training companies out there. Um, I'm going to sound like I'm plugging myself. I'm a salesperson. I do sales training with venues. I've been doing that for a really long time. You look out and I try and find other organisations. There just aren't big training resources. And then you wonder why salespeople in our industry, they leave the industry. This is why we've got a problem, because we're not valuing. Mm. You know, we need to look at the whole commission structure, salary structures, you know, we need to value these people and we need to give them a profession. We need to tell these people that there's a career. There's so many people that don't, wouldn't even identify as, as events professionals, though, aren't there? People, I would imagine many, many half of, of your listeners, listeners won't know that they're part of this global community in this global industrial sector i'd say it's more than half i mean Probably, you know, yeah. i used to work at a go-kart track for years and years and years i always thought i worked in motorsport but the truth was i was running events for corporate clients i was in the events industry without even realizing it and but, how many of our corporate planners who are listening today so from our law firms who have gone into events they've got their job because of various various skills that they've got but then are there in their businesses? Where do they then grow and develop their skills in these in these areas? Which is why we've got the shortage. So important. Events experience is a central part of any modern 
modern brand building, modern marketing events and, you know, live experiences is a huge part of that. And yeah, Event Lab itself, as you say, event that we had at the Barbican last year, I imagine, you know, only a certain percentage of the delegates there would self-identify as as events professionals, but they're still putting on big, important events. But what do we do around communicating out to these people? I mean, you know, you're doing a great job here with our podcast, but what are we doing to tell these people they are part of an industrial sector where they can hopefully find a hub for professional development? Why are we not doing this? Callers may call in. Yeah, I, was, I thought I was going to have an postcard. answer, but I didn't have an answer. <laughs> there was just a really awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. answer, if we can find the answer to that, then, you know... We that, found may, gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe people could write in with their answers and on yeah. the next podcast we'll read them out. Best responses get on the podcast. Time has flown as usual. I think we're there, Sam, Martin. I will be reporting back in in two weeks for, um, after MPI's European Meeting and Events Conference. I'll be able to share some really good insights, some great tracks of education at that event that I'm emceeing. So I will come back and give our listeners some some really good nuggets of content from that conference. And meanwhile, I'll be going to UK Inbound, their annual convention up in Glasgow next week, and hopefully I'll have some nuggets as well. Look forward to it. Have a great couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. It's over to the boys from the Venue Expert team now with a bit of Venue Talk. Well, no, I mean, I've just, I've I've mostly just got opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Ding dong, welcome to Venue Talk. I'm uh, Nathan, I'm I'm joined by uh, Joe McGarrigal today. How you doing, Uh, Joe? Thank you very much, happy to be here. Um, Jake, unfortunately, couldn't couldn't come tonight, he's at a a concert. That sounds pretty posh. Yeah, uh, well, it's more of a a gig, really, than a a concert. You're going to tell me it's a rave, aren't you? Couldn't come, he's had it in his calendar for a while, so uh, fair play, Jake. Um... But uh, I'm I'm glad to be joined by Joe uh, for another episode of Venue Talk, um, where we talk about all the hottest new openings in London. Brilliant! And I'm really excited about the one that we're going to be talking about. Like this one is right up my street. Yeah, Joe. Why don't you kick us off then? All right. So um, this one is Sessions House, which is going to be opening in Farringdon or just opened. Um, basically, the reason I like this one is it's it's a Grade Two listed building, so it's got the sort of like the classic stuff that you expect from grade two listed buildings in London. Um, it's got all that sort of like history and culture and sort of like um, like impressive architecture. But it's also got a bit of an edgy side as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, I love a bit I mean, it, it, it's, it's actually really versatile. Like, I really like the look of this one. Um, it's It can do a bit of everything. So it's got big sort of like grand entrance with large windows behind grand staircase that's very sort of like Great Gatsby. I hear so often working as a venue expert that, um, you know, that request of, the Great Gatsby, yeah, like give me a Great Gatsby, Gatsby vibe, yeah, like super popular, and you can totally do that, which is fantastic. Um, but as well as that, um, they've got sort, they've brought sort of like an edginess to it as well. There's this um, that what they've done is they've sort of stripped all the wallpaper from the walls. It's got this sort of, um, it, it reminds me of all the places that teenage girls who were taking photography classes used to like to go and take photos of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I've got a Tumblr account. I know it's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would describe it as sad classical. Okay. But it, but it's cool because like every there's so many venues in London that have this sort of great sort of historical look but not many of them you could take 
edgier events too because mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the right tone it wouldn't be the right context but with this one you totally can and in terms of anyone's that are looking for any clients or any events that you're planning that are looking for somewhere with some great history this one's got some fantastic stuff so it's for it used to be the courthouse in finsbury park um they've had like famous revolutionaries they've had thieves they've had like pickpockets one of the most famous pickpockets that they've had uh, although only in fiction was it's the courthouse that features in the Charles Dickens novel Oliver Twist, mm. um, and it's where when he when they think that uh, when he gets caught pickpocketing and they take him and then he gets adopted by the rich family, that's the courthouse that they take him to. I Which... actually I actually played the Artful Dodger in my uh, <laughs> in Thrift Manor Primary School's uh, Year Five adaptation of of Oliver. Nathan, I totally buy you as the Artful Dodger. Like yeah. I don't think you'd need to act. Like you've you've got it down. Whilst I was auditioning for it. I pretended to pickpocket uh, my teacher as I was going up. I was about to be blind. And then one of the other kids shouted at the back. He's like, you stole my idea. I didn't. <laughs> I mean. Well, even if you had stole his idea, that's uh, that's exa- that's an artful dodger move. Like, he steals stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and another thing that's great with the venue is they've got all these different spaces. And uh, you, they've got, like, boardroom spaces. They've got, like, sort of, like, grander event spaces. You can do sort of little meetings, big meetings. Um, you can do conferences in there, works really well. And I know that there's actually, for venues like this that have got this sort of much history and this sort of classical style, yeah. there's actually a bit of a dry spot in the Farringdon area. Like Farringdon, Farringdon, Farringdon is one of my favourite areas of London. I, I think and it's absolutely fantastic. fantastic. And, we get, and we get so many requests from it because it's mm. such a sort of a centre of, like, like so many so many businesses are based a around there and want, I, I get the requests all the time. There's other venues that like pop up like Piano Works, other ones that sort of like go-tos, but they haven't... No not, other not very venues. classy very Piano Works. Exactly, yeah. They haven't, <laughs> like Farringdon doesn't really have one of these, so I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a really popular one, especially for companies or events organising where they want it sort of quite close to their base and when they want to easily be able to bring local guests to it without Definitely. them having to travel a long way. Would it be a good one for uh, parties as well? Is it more of a... Absolutely. A I mean, as, as I was saying to begin with, the, the, it's got this sort of great Gatsby vibe. Mm. And the edginess that I was talking about with the um, with the sort of... The, the way they've done it with the stripped wallpaper, it lends. It can so easily lend itself to sort of a bit of a blank canvas. You can uplight it and it'll look great, but you can also strip that away and it'll look a bit more bohemian, a bit more sort of... A bit more relaxed so it just takes the edge off of that you know that that edge that some venues have with their very classical and traditional style it's got that but it just softens it a little bit with how they've decorated which i really like um my uh my problem with uh, great gatsby is like a theme for events everyone wants like great gatsby as a theme for an event like they've never read the book and understood but the whole point of the book is that people will talk of people have parties to um cover up for the inherent loneliness and lack of uh lack of reason within their lives but anyway uh so joe that sounds amazing thank you very much for taking us through that venue it sounds absolutely fantastic um so i did have one myself actually uh it's a new opening opening in may of this year uh it's called the stratford hotel and manhattan loft gardens okay sounds very exciting um so we we got sent through a, a pdf of their spaces it looks absolutely amazing what what it made me think of when i saw it you know when you were when when you're um maybe like a a young adult or a teenager and you imagine your life moving into london uh watching watching tv and seeing all these amazing cool apartments in london that was what i was imagining when i first kind of moved to london what actually happened is i was staying in uh, on the sofa of a uh, of a family's of a family's living room and one <laughs> of their kids put a paintbrush in my salad dressing <laughs> it's a true story um 
But definitely when I saw Visa, I thought, you know, that's 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 London in a nutshell. It's amazing. It's it's, it's in Stratford, as I mentioned. Yeah. Um, very up and coming area, vying to be a tech hub of London. So much space there. Post Olympic Games, uh, doing all sorts of amazing stuff there. And uh, there is a hotel opening there, as I mentioned in May next year, Stratford Hotel at Manhattan Loft Gardens. Um, 145 bedrooms, standard hotel bedrooms, but also 250 loft apartments. So what they're trying to do with the loft apartments is it's more these kind of swanky pads that you get in Manhattan that you kind of dream about in London. Okay, yeah. You'd stay there and uh, their whole their whole thing is that they're trying to create a, using their marketing mission, trying to create a vertical community where people can come together and stay for a night or a week, or stay forever. They've got their own, they're just really cool apartments, but you can rent them out, and, you know, they've got their own kitchens. It just it just really is sort of like what everyone imagines when they're moving to a big city, and it's absolutely awesome, and you'd be in the heart of the Olympic Village. So uh, it would work really well for, um, for like, guests from overseas? Absolutely, Like, they yeah. to stay for a little while? yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they're imagining. We don't, we you know, we we can give them the best London experience by giving them what they kind of think in their own head, and um, this this would absolutely be it. So they've got um, Sky Gardens on the seventh. Uh, this is this is a huge place. So yeah. seventh, that's reasonably high. Sky Garden on the seventh floor, the twenty fifth floor. I'm not even done yet. They've got a sky garden on the 35th floor. <laughs> oh wow! 35 floors, top of building. So they've have they got like a ta- like a staircase of gardens going up. I don't know how it works. I don't know how they can have a sky garden. All they've got outdoor spaces on all of those floors, which could be hired for events, which could be used by people who are staying there, and they all look absolutely amazing. I was I was looking at them. They've got. You know, it's it's all kind of wooden paneling and bonsai trees, and oh, nice. yeah, it, it it really looks amazing. But on top of that, if we're looking more at events rather than hotel stays, four event spaces, which should be absolutely great. Um, again, similar sort of style as well as hiring up the Sky Gardens, and they um a sim a, uh, they've got a, a restaurant on the on the premises as well, um, which uh, the head chef is actually going to be. Uh, Patrick Powell, who is, uh, as, as you all know, Joe, who was the head chef at the Chilton Firehouse. Uh, Ooh, Chilton, very nice, yeah, Chilton, very nice. Very nice restaurant, I don't know. I do yeah. kind of feel like with the with these, with the lower and the high garden that I would want to be on the top garden so that I felt like I was a god on Mount Olympus. Yes. <laughs> I've actually found recently when I've been to event spaces in London, which are on the seventh floor, you do actually get a pretty amazing view being on that floor because it's not overwhelming when you're looking over the whole of London but you do get a view from there where you're over the top. If you're on the 7th to 12th floor, you're still over most of the buildings and you get to see. So if I look at, if I, if I compare it to somewhere like the Sky Garden, it's amazing. You uh, get okay, a view of the whole yeah, of London, yeah, yeah. but you can't even see most of London <laughs> because you're so high yeah, above it's too it. far away. Yeah, <laughs> you could be anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's Ma- Manhattan Loft Gardens at the Stratford Hotel. Looks like a really amazing opening. That's coming, uh, should be should be open by May of this year, 2019. A lot of loft apartments, a lot of bedrooms, and also, as I mentioned, quite a few event spaces. And I'm sure as a month's roll by of this year, there'll be a lot of more information coming around about that place and a lot more yeah, buzz and a lot more hype growing. Brilliant. Okay, amazing stuff. Well, thank you for joining me, Joe, on the first... Uh, venue talk of the year thanks to everyone for listening and uh, we'll uh, speak to you in a few weeks sounds good cheers bye Bye. and now it's the moment you've all been waiting for up next Benjamin Edmonds from the Event Lab team sitting down with Kate Simpson marketing director and Lowry Jones conference executive from the team at the Business Design Centre for a chat and an exciting announcement
tonight I am joined by Lori and Kate from the Business Design Centre. How are you both doing? Hello. Hello. Very good, very good. From celebrities to cows to BAFTAs and bingo, tonight's guests have come to us with news on the next hugely exciting event that's going to be coming through its doors. On the 14th and the 15th of October, I'm absolutely thrilled to announce that Event Lab 2019 is going to be joining this prestigious company at the Business Design Centre. It's been a long time coming, I think, um, and it's great to finally announce it um, and to finally confirm Event Lab with us. Um, it's going to be a very exciting event, uh, lots of ideas, great team. Um, be really exciting to kind of see how it's going to come together in the hall. Um, it's going to be the gallery hall um, and our atrium just above it. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a few crazy ideas and wacky things happening. So have, it'll be um, very exciting. Have health and safety uh, signed off on the, <laughs> uh, the helter-skelter to get between the floors yet? Or... <laughs> so, Kate, tell us a little bit about the Business Design Centre. Uh, so, the Business Design Centre had a very colourful history. Um, it earned its royal title as a result of its patronage in the 1900s. Then, after the war, lay derelict until it was saved by a man called Sam Morris, who turned it into a trade centre concept where there's office space and events that complement it. Nowadays, as it used to be design, we have um, some really new tech companies. Um, we've got a diversified client base, and that is complemented by the range of wonderful events that we host. This incredible space hosted the Smithfield Show in 1862, which had a record-breaking 134,699 attendees. That's a good stat, yes. It's a good stat, isn't wow. it? Had the Olympics there, 72,000 pints and 6,000 strudel. <laughs> I don't know why everyone wasn't having the strudel. <laughs> What's sort of been the favourite thing that you've seen done in the venue so far? Well, you mentioned the Olympics, so I was uh, there for very many parts of the 72,000 pints. Um, how, many, how many did you get through yourself? <laughs> well, it was actually really, <laughs> uh, a really good event to work on, um, seeing they built this massive bar in the centre of the hall, and we had Olympians and many famous people come throughout the, I think it was like a three-week tenancy. So it was a really special event to see. Before my time, I think you mentioned the BAFTAs. So yeah. we had uh, the whole of the front of the <laughs> venue was uh, transformed into kind of this red carpet with the BAFTAs around the front. Um, it was a little bit before my time working there, though. Yeah. Yeah, just a bit. Just a little bit, yeah. And there's been some punchier events there recently? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I like the phone. <laughs> very good, very punny. Um, yeah, for the first time this year, last year, sorry, still in 2018, um, we had the Anthony Joshua uh, Povetkin weigh-in, mm -hmm. which is in August. So that was actually a really fun event to have. It's not something I've ever seen in the venue. And the logistics, I think it was your event that came in afterwards, turning like 4,500 yeah. 4, 4, boxing fans in the venue round into a recruitment exhibition. Yeah, loads of students trying to get in at the same time, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, it was great fun, wasn't it? Yeah. It was something a bit different for the venue, which is always exciting. Yeah, I think having... We had a, we had a second one in just before Christmas, mm, so... Yeah. Something we don't 
tend to hold just because of the nature of the building and the balance of the people in the venue, but everybody really, mm. really enjoyed it. Maybe Event Lab 2019 is the first events industry boxing tournament that we have as well. Don't. We sort of see, see what else can boxing. go in. Oh. It's just a little insight, this is. <laughs> there's, there's lots of ideas going on. No, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be good to work closer as well with Higher Space. Obviously, we've got quite a good relationship already. So it'll be great to kind of go for the planning side rather than the agency side. So we're going to have lots of uh, lots of different exhibitors. We're going to have some different um, experiential features as well. If you are looking for the future of events, the place to be on the 14th and 15th of October 2019 is the Business Design Centre. And on that note, thank you very much for joining me, ladies. Thank you, and thank you very much. There you go. Get a cheers. <laughs>Now, Event Lab 2019 isn't until October, but coming up in February, we have our first Event Lab series event, cost-effective ways to personalise the live event and surprise your audience. You can register your interest to attend at eventlab.online. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Finally, you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. Thanks very much for listening.